that's enough about me. Uh, we're not gathered around any man, are we? But we're focusing here on Jesus this morning. So let's turn. We're starting in Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 23. And let's read that together this morning. And he went throughout all Galilee, that's Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied." Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning, please, to not only understand your word, but to be transformed by it. So please, would your spirit be at work amongst us. Help us to see Jesus for who he really is and that we would love him more deeply, and that we would be changed into his image and likeness. All of this, Lord, for your glory. Please help me this morning to proclaim your word faithfully and true for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're looking at some of Jesus' most famous words, aren't we? The Beatitudes. And it's these words that put him right alongside all the good teachers of all the major religions of the world. It's very famous. And they're so well known that um, people have often tried to copy kind of the format of them in their own way, haven't they? And maybe you've heard some of these. Uh, Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. Blessed are the sleepy ones, for they shall soon nod off. Maybe that's you here this morning. Blessed are the young, for they shall inherit the national debt. Uh, And this one I think is quite good. Blessed is he who has learned to laugh at himself, for he shall never cease to be entertained. Um, I actually remember my opa having a bumper sticker on the back of his car that said, uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, if that's all right with you. Um, I thought that was yeah, quite funny. 
Uh, It's a very catchy line, isn't it? But I wonder sometimes if we miss the point of them because we don't really understand what it means to be blessed. If you're on Instagram or Facebook at all, I'm sure that you've seen uh, this common hashtag come up a lot, um, and it's the hashtag blessed. And it'll it'll normally be under someone um, with a photo of their dog, you know, or their house, or their meal, or their family, um, something like that. And in many ways, they're not wrong. God has immensely blessed us with so many material things, and we ought to be thankful for that. But if we just leave it there, if our focus is just on the material blessings that we receive, I think we're going to completely miss out on the point of these Beatitudes. Rather than material blessings that are really nice to have, these blessings actually define us, uh, define who will enter into the kingdom of God. These blessings show us the characteristics of those whom will receive eternal life. See, there's no amount of material blessing that could even come close to what is in store for, the sta- for those whom these statements are true of. But before we unpack them, Matthew kind of sets the scene for us in the beginning of our passage. Uh, last week, Tony showed us how and why Jesus was baptised in the Jordan by John, and then he was led into the wilderness, wasn't he, by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And then upon his return, Jesus begins his ministry and he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we've, we've skipped this part of Matthew, but Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James and John. And then this is where we begin our passage for this morning. So let's have a look again at verses 23 to 25. And he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here we have Jesus traveling throughout all the region of Galilee, and it's very clear what his ministry entailed, isn't it? Matthew is very clear for us. He taught in the synagogue, so he would open the scriptures and explain to them, uh, to those who had gathered. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and while this is probably done in the synagogue, uh, there's more than likely a form of street preaching being done as well, as people would gather around him there. And the core of this proclamation is what we just read in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus is teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And then the third thing he's doing in his ministry is healing every disease and affliction among the people. It's quite miraculous, isn't it? And Matthew goes to great detail, even listing, you know, all the diseases and pains and demons and seeds and paralytics. He he healed all of them. Everyone that, that they brought to Jesus, he healed them. He's doing this miraculous works of healing all throughout the region of Galilee. And after 400 years of silence from God and from any miraculous work, all of a sudden there's this flurry of activity, isn't there? And it's drawing people's attention. The news spreads, 
hey, come and see Jesus. And so Matthew kind of says, uh, quite obviously, his, his fame spread. Everyone wants to come. And this sets the scene for the famous Sermon on the Mount. And this will be our focus for this morning, the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, seeing the crowds that had all gathered to him, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. There's a couple of really important things to note as we consider these opening verses of this new section in Matthew's Gospel. The first is what Jesus does when he sees the crowds that had gathered. He went up to the mountain and sat down. Now, to our modern minds, this statement probably means absolutely nothing. Um, Matthew's just kind of telling us what Jesus did. That's totally normal. But to the Jewish reader of Matthew's Gospel, there's all kinds of these lights and alarm bells dinging in their head. You see, those words, he went up on the mountain and sat down, is written verbatim just two times in the Old Testament, uh, but in two really crucial places in the Old Testament. And by now, you might be able to take a pretty good guess as to where that comes up. Uh, And that's when Moses receives God's law on Mount Sinai, and then he went up to the mountain to sit down and to read it to God's people. You see, Matthew is so intentional in using these words for his Jewish readers, I think to show them to show them and us this really clear and important truth that contrasted with Moses, who was the great and mighty leader who rescued God's people and then brought them his law, Jesus now is the greater and better Moses who has come to rescue God's people and now in the Sermon on the Mount he is bringing them God's law. And why is he the greater and better Moses? Well, Moses had to receive God's word first, didn't he? He spent all that time at the top of Mount Sinai receiving God's word, writing it down, and it was only then that he came down and gave it to them. But what does Jesus do? He just speaks God's word, doesn't he? He just speaks it. And this is emphasized in the second important thing to note in our couple of verses here. And where Matthew writes in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. Duh, Matthew, how else are you supposed to teach people without opening your mouth? Why would in the longest gospel where every word is so precious, does Matthew seem to use these unnecessary words to tell us that Jesus opened his mouth? Well, again, this is a Jewish idiom that would have had more light stinging in their Jewish minds. The phrase, he opened his mouth, was one that was used for those who were there to speak the very words of God. See, Matthew is painting such a clear picture for his Jewish readers that Jesus is about to speak to God, as God to his people. Jesus is about to speak as God to his people. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus truly is the king. So before we come to the King's Sermon on the Mount, I want you to invite you to come and trust the King, to trust who he is and what he has done. 
don't simply just acknowledge him as a good teacher because his ministry is proof of his claims that he is God and his message demands that we come and repent, that we turn from our sin and trusting in our own ability to come and enter his kingdom. We must rather acknowledge him as king and come and trust him. Because you see, without trusting the king, these beatitudes, they really don't mean much to us at all. As we'll see, these are not characteristics that we can have to a degree that will earn us a place in the kingdom, but rather these things must be received. And we only receive them by turning from our sin and ourselves and coming with empty hands of faith and trusting in the king who saves And as we're about to spend the next month or so in this Sermon on the Mount, I just wanted to talk about one tension uh, that we're going to feel today, but also I think in the next few weeks as we look at the following passages, and that's this one. That these words of Jesus, they demand total obedience and righteousness to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In uh, chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he takes it even further at the end of chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then even if you thought that you were doing all the right things, Jesus has this to say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you feel this tension? I think it can be described like this. On the one side, we might be tempted to not take Jesus' words all that seriously, to not take his commands in the Sermon on the Mount all that seriously. Because, well, if we can't really keep them anyway, and we know that it's ultimately Jesus' righteousness that saves us, then what's the point? Why bother with them? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he calls this cheap grace. A grace that we take for granted and show no desire to love and to serve the one that has saved us. I think that's the first temptation that this tension might lead us to. But then the second, I think, is equally as dangerous in that we can be tempted to believe that if we just do all of these things right and as best as we can, then we will enter the kingdom, not ultimately because of Jesus' righteousness, but because of our own Both of these, the New Testament deals with very explicitly in places. And I think it teaches us how to hold these things in tension if we might feel this when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. The right way, I think, that we ought to approach these teachings from Jesus is to receive them as commands that we must adhere to as those who submit to the King of the Kingdom in total allegiance to Him because we have received infinite grace and mercy from this King who has saved us. 
He has purchased us with his very own blood. We are his people. We are now slaves to righteousness, as Paul puts it. For the true disciples of Christ, for those who are going to inherit the kingdom and to be with the king forever, there is no room for us to think that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us or that we can achieve our own righteousness. We simply respond wholeheartedly and sincerely to the grace that we have received. Please forgive me if all of this feels like a really long introduction. And in some ways it is, but also I really hope and pray that now we can come to the Beatitudes, seeing Jesus as the King of the Kingdom, and with hearts of faith, trusting Him for all that He has done, and desiring to respond to Him in repentance and obedience. So with that said, let's read again the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These eight Beatitudes, most simply understood, are the characteristics of those who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We can see it there in the first and last ones, can't we? In verses 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then again in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I know verse 11, it follows us, he goes again, blessed are you, so some want to argue for nine, um, but I think, yeah, most commentators and scholars would just argue that verse 11 and 12 are kind of coming out of verse 10, so we're going to stick with the eight. You can fight me on that later, that's great. Um, But what Jesus is saying is that if you are poor in spirit, if you mourn, if you are meek, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness... If you are merciful, if you are pure in heart, if you are a peacemaker, if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, then you will enter the kingdom. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons of God. These are the characteristics of those who will enter the kingdom of God. So, some might say... Do them. Be it. Let these things be true of you and you will be blessed. The kingdom is yours if you make sure that these things define you. And I would be inclined to agree with them provided that we make one thing clear first. The degree to which our lives look like this 
and therefore enter the kingdom is determined by the degree to which we receive these as gifts from the king. Let me say that again for you. The degree to which our lives look like this is determined by the degree to which we receive these as gifts from the king. So let me put it this way. Um, Kids, raise your hands. Who here is supposed to be in kids' church right now? Yeah, there's a bunch of you. You guys are doing so well. Keep being good for mum and dad. You guys are great. Um, Can I ask you, kids out there, uh, who does this sound like, okay? I'm going to read a bunch of things, and then you yell out who you think this sounds like, okay? Um, Where am I up to? Uh, Who do you know that is poor in spirit? Who mourned over all that is wrong? Who is meek or who is gentle and lowly? Who, thung- who, who hungers and thirsts for all the really good things? Who is merciful and kind? Who has completely good and is completely good and pure in heart? Who makes peace with people? Who was persecuted because of righteousness? Who does this sound like, kids? Yell it out. Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, that's right. It's Jesus. He's the one that perfectly displayed in all of his life the values of the kingdom because he is the king of the kingdom. As our perfect sin sacrifice, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and everything that he commands us to do, he has certainly done. So at the core of these Beatitudes, we see the beauty of who Jesus is, don't we? And what he has done for us. So how does this link to how we are to receive these characteristics as a gift? By the power of the Holy Spirit, we were raised from being dead in our sin to life in Christ and receiving all of his own righteousness and receiving his very spirit that is now at work within us to conform us into the image of Christ. Look at uh, Romans 8, verse 29 with me. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son, into the image of the King. That is the power of the Spirit that is working within us is sanctifying us and making us more and more like Jesus. You see, he has made us to imitate the king. And this is how we are to receive the truth and beauty of these Beatitudes, the characteristics of the king predestined for those of us who belong to his kingdom. It is all by the powerful grace of God working in our lives. What does Philippians 2.13 say? That it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, this is why Jesus can say that you are blessed. Blessed are those of who these things are true. You don't muster up the strength or energy or ability to produce the likeness of Jesus in your life. See, God does it. He loves you so much that he rescues you from your sin, but then loves you all the more that he cleanses you from it. 
And he makes you more like the beloved son. This is such good news for us, isn't it? That these beatitudes, that they are words of celebration for us as disciples of the Lord Jesus. Because we've been awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit and we're being prepared for the kingdom and the age to come that will endure forever and ever. So if you're feeling weary or burdened by your sin and your inability this morning, beloved, feel the freedom of these blessings and receive them as the gift that they are. If you're walking away from Jesus right now instead of with him as you ought to be, beloved, pray that God would change your heart and give you a new direction and begin to bear the likeness of the king. If you've been feeble in your love for the king, receive his words as the power for transformation and let them reignite your zeal for him. Blessed are those who bear the likeness of the king, for they belong to him and will reign with him forever and ever. Come, friends, and imitate the king by his strength and in his grace, for rich is the reward and great are the blessings for those whom he is conforming into his image. Do we need more convincing? It seems so because Jesus, he doesn't stop there. In fact, this is really just the start of his Sermon on the Mount and he goes on. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." I think we're very familiar with these words too, aren't we? I think the analogies, uh, Jesus is very clever, they're quite straightforward, um, except people today, they still want to debate over exactly what salt did in the ancient world. Um, A lot want to say that salt preserves food, um, especially meat, and that's true. Um, I definitely love a good piece of biltong. But Jesus makes reference to the taste of salt, and so I'm a little bit more inclined to go with that. And Jesus, he warns us of losing our taste and our light, doesn't he? He warns us of losing our very distinctiveness as the people of the kingdom. Perhaps Jesus meaning, ironically, you know, salt can't lose its taste. A city on a a hill, it can't be hidden. It's impossible. Maybe. But still a very serious note remains. On these words from the king, doesn't it? Tasteless salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How useless is a light hidden under a basket? Good for nothing. Jesus says that there is so much at stake. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As we take the gospel 
to our neighbours and to our friends and our family, to the nations. Our holiness, our distinctiveness, our bearing the characteristics of the kingdom is heavily impacted by this, isn't it? This greatly affects our evangelism. That as people see us, as we bear the likeness of the King, that this will actually cause them to glorify our Father who is in heaven. As we live our lives in the image of the King, others will see our light and taste our saltiness and so bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is the persuasion that we ultimately need, isn't it? We are to trust the King. We are to imitate the King so that we can glorify the King. All of this for the glory of God. That truly is our highest good, the end for which all of creation has been made for. You see, it is only as we live our lives for the glory of God, that we will truly discover, ultimately, a better translation for the word blessed, and that is this, happy. Not some artificial happiness, which our culture and society are bent on selling us through material and sinful things. No, rather, it is a deep-rooted joy and peace from God that transcends all other circumstances that may threaten it. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessedness from God, it truly is happiness, because we are living as we truly ought to, trusting the king, imitating the king, so that we would glorify the King. While I really wish that I had time to unpack every beatitude for you this morning, the one that I found myself set on is the fourth one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I think that it's out of this one that all of the others really flow from, don't they? Being poor in spirit, that is seeing ourselves for who we really are, as wretched sinners in the light of God's glory and holiness, mourning over our sinful state and all that is wrong with the world, meekness that is being willing to humble ourselves for the good of others, being merciful, pure in heart, making peace with others, all of these, they flow out from a hunger and thirst for righteousness, don't they? Uh, Every night, we've got to wrestle Ezra to let us brush his teeth for him. Uh, Otherwise, he just sucks the toothpaste off and chews the head of the toothbrush. Uh, Sometimes it's fun, but, you know, we might have a laugh. But mostly, it's just annoying. (laughs) Um, The kids are tired, we're tired, everyone's ready for bed. And Ezra, he he just doesn't want to do what he's told. And why? Because he doesn't want to. And I say this to illustrate, I think, the nature of the sinful heart. Because when we don't want to do something, then we generally, we don't do it, do we? So how far the opposite then, order hungering and thirsting for righteousness 
ought to look like. We really don't comprehend this concept of hungering and thirsting anymore, do we? Maybe if we skip lunch because we're busy and then we get to the dinner table and we go, ah, I'm starving. Or maybe we work really hard in the garden on a 40-degree day and we get to the fridge, you know, ah, I'm dying of thirst. Perhaps maybe instead we could just imagine going without food for 40 days and 40 nights like Jesus. Or maybe being lost in the Aussie desert for a few days without water. This hungering and thirsting, it seems so foreign in a time of such prosperity, doesn't it? But Jesus' words remain as true as ever. That those who belong to the kingdom will be marked by a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Do we ache and long to see and live our lives as Christ would have us live them? How much do we desire to display the glory of God in our good works? Are we crying out as people of the King to see his righteousness worked in us and through us? Is it shown in our prayers or conversations or our confession of sin? Is it shown in our fasting? People of the kingdom, do we give up food or water for periods of time to plead with the king for his righteousness to be made manifest in our lives? These beatitudes, they're comforting, aren't they? That we receive them as gifts, as characteristics of the king that we are being conformed into. But they're confronting as well, aren't they? Praise God that he is the one that is at work within us, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. Praise God that he is the one that even in our unfaithfulness, Christ remained faithful to save us, not only from our death in sin, but even our imperfect efforts at following him. Praise God that that there is an abundance of blessings waiting for us who live our lives trusting the King and imitating the King for the glory of the King. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you now to conform us into the image of your Son. As people of the kingdom, would you please help us to continue to grow in our resemblance to the king? Would you continue to help us to fight our sin and to die to ourselves and to walk in your righteous ways? Would you please, Lord, make us poor in spirit? Would you make us mourn for our sin and for our sinful world? Would you make us meek? Would you help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Would you make us merciful? Would you make us pure in heart? Would you make us peacemakers? Would you help us to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? 
in a way that glorifies you. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and trust Jesus who has made himself so clear to us. Help us to imitate him so that we would glorify him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.